Welcome to Apostrophe Cast. In the Mothering Coven, Joanna Rocco builds us a vacation cottage in a mad village inhabited by brilliant kooks such as Mrs. Borridge, who mixes metaphysics with the chores, and ace reporter Duncan Michaels, whose articles are never read. When it is time for you to leave this village, we think you'll find these characters following you. Please enjoy Joanna Rocco. The Mothering Coven. Leaves used to pile on one side of the house, and now they pile on the other. The wind has changed direction, and who is subscribing to all these magazines? Agnes closes the kitchen window. She checks the herring. No bubbles. The oven isn't even on, says Agnes. It must be a Bismarck, says Mrs. Borridge. You never cook a Bismarck. Mrs. Borridge has a logical mind. She sits in her rocking chair, snipping pictures from the Helsinki Winky. The pictures are better than the articles. Mrs. Borge wonders if it is the Finnish language that she finds objectionable. Or else, I don't have the patience for very long words anymore, thinks Mrs. Borge. Mrs. Borge stands up. I caught a herring once, announces Mrs. Borge, in Lake Chargagagog, Manchagagag, Chupanagangamaag. Mrs. Borge sits down. That felt wonderful, says Mrs. Borridge. It's settled then. She objects to the Finnish language. Mrs. Borridge picks up her scissors. She is snipping pictures of the Finnish national hockey team. Mrs. Borridge does not object to Finnish hockey players. Mrs. Borridge is about to turn 100, but she could still appreciate a Schatzlein. Agnes folds the laundry. Bertrand's crimson gambeson, she's washed it again. Laces, broken, stuffing coming out. Is that mildew? Agnes looks closer. Death caps have sprouted along the quilting. Pale green diamonds on a crimson field. The sickly yellow fringe, that's honey tuft. And the leather collar, tromp de mort. Agnes heaves the gambeson back into the dryer drum. The tenth, or tithe, is often given to the imperium, says Agnes, to no one in particular. But we weren't ten, says Bryce. Agnes, Bertrand, Bryce, Fiona, Dorcas, Hildegard, and Ozark, says Dorcas. Mrs. Borridge, eight. Besides, is Europe still the Imperium? There are so many abandoned castles, so many unemployed knights, entire orders in dissuade, the esoteric order of night-blooming flocks, the order of Brucken, the noble order of Girdle, the order of Pussy Willow, the order of Radish. Bryce has taped Bertrand's postcards to the refrigerator door, to the microwave door, to the television screen. Now she is coating them with polyurethane. She adds a bit of moss to Lake Narrow to simulate an algal bloom. Over here, silica flakes. They give a badly needed glimmer to the deserts of Poland. Bryce imagines Bertrand in the deserts of Poland. Will Bertrand see the white and gold Polish eagle? Will she see Queen Wanda the drowned? The moss absorbs a good deal of polyurethane. Bryce has a terrible headache. Headaches are always the danger with the plastic arts. Mrs. Borge is in the yard, raking leaves into enormous piles. The wind keeps carrying the leaves away. They fly back and forth past the dining room window. Should we help her? asks Bryce. Her movements are so regular, says Fiona. It must be a form of raking meditation. Now Mrs. Borage is carrying rocks from the garden. Rocks and cabbage heads and dried pumpkin vines and red lettuce hearts, big armfuls. She's weighing down the piles, says Dorcas. That's very clever. 
Mrs. Borridge goes back and forth, back and forth from the piles to the garden. It looks fun, says Ozark. Bryce is putting on her green Macintosh. She's been meaning to make leaf lapel pins for quite a while now, and perhaps a catkin sash. I'll get the wheelbarrow, cries Dorcas. Fiona blocks the doorway. We look at her. No sudden move, says Fiona. We can't interfere with the theta brain. The theta brain, says Dorcas, of course. We cluster again at the dining room window. We try to peer less obtrusively. This involves curtains. Achoo, sneezes Ozark. Fiona glares. We glare. We peer between the curtains. And Mrs. Borage is jolted from her trance too soon. She could be trapped. Her soul on a shamanic journey. Her body piling cabbage heads on oak leaves. Back and forth. Back and forth for all of time. Suddenly, Mrs. Borage stops, her arms filled with bottle gourds. She realizes that she has built eight cairns on the front lawn. They give the property a somber aspect. This is not at all what she intended. Fiddlesticks, curses Mrs. Borage. Mr. Henderson comes out of the colonial next door, covered in clay. He is a potter and very fond of Mrs. Borage. Hello, Mrs. Borage, says Mr. Henderson. He regards the compost heaps, towers of harvest vegetables, rotting. He has a feeling that death is near. Mr. Henderson thinks about death a great deal, alone in his garage, spinning and spinning his bowls, until they're so thin he can see his hands through the walls like the bowls are made of glass. He pulls the walls up, higher and higher, narrow shafts that hold for an instant, tall and translucent, glass reeds, glass flutes, before collapsing again into mud. The smell of wood smoke is in the air. Of course, Mr. Henderson sees the faces of the dead in the wrinkles of the cabbage heads. We all do. I don't, says Mrs. Borage, stubbornly. She still sees with her theta brain, which gives her a distant perspective, as though she is flying above the surface of the earth. Mrs. Borage sees topological formations, for example, the shallows of Lake Chargagagog, Manchagagog, Chibanagungamaag. There is Mrs. Borage, far below, casting for herring, casting into a cold wind, wearing squirrel fur. The hook lands behind her in the fan wart. Mrs. Borage shivers. The ground is whitening between the cairns. Deep within the non-Euclidean curvature of the lettuce hearts, tiny ice crystals are forming. Mr. Henderson is a large, shy man who knows nothing about Euclid. He knows that he would like to mold a piece of clay into a lettuce heart and give it to Mrs. Borage. He's so excited to get started, he almost runs back to his house without saying goodbye, but he remembers just in time. Goodbye, Mrs. Borage, says Mr. Henderson shyly, but Mrs. Borage is still gazing into a lettuce heart. Does this look like the physical universe, asks Mrs. Borage. Mr. Henderson takes the lettuce heart. He had always thought the physical universe had no shape at all, just a multi-directional nothingness with deep space objects floating around at varying speeds. He realizes that he has been ridiculous. All these dark, folded places opening everywhere at once. Of course that's what the physical universe looks like. Mr. Henderson can't make a lettuce heart now. It's far too daunting. He leaves Mrs. Borage to her compost heaps and goes inside his drafty colonial. He makes tomato soup on the utility stove. He drinks tomato soup alone in the dark big house. His eyes hold no expression. They are big and blank, like the eyes of the blueback herring, like the eyes of Abraham Lincoln, like the holes in a glass flute shattering.
In the middle of the night, Mrs. Borage tiptoes out the front door. The yard is dark. The cairns seem even taller and more somber in the darkness. Mrs. Borage lifts her whale oil lantern. Leaves race past in the wind, and the lantern swings back and forth, throwing shadows. Mrs. Borage looks at the wrinkled cabbage heads. There are the little children stacked against the city walls. There is Enrica, who perished on the Deutschland. Mrs. Borge supposes many Enricas are walking, even now, in the streets of Saul's Cotton, between the saltwater fountains. She supposes there are many children in Saul's Cotton, sitting on the ruined marble of the fountains, dried salt on their fingers, eating dirf brought. Nonetheless, it feels to Mrs. Borge that tonight the world is a place for ghosts. Even in the United States of America, asks Mrs. Borge. When Mrs. Borage wakes up in the morning, she moves swiftly to the bedroom window. She is not surprised to see that the world has been covered with salt. The cairns are white with salt, and the rows of broken stalks in the garden, and the trees at Mr. Henderson's rooftop, and the street is also long and white. Mrs. Borage pokes her head into the hallway, but there is no salt on the carpet. They didn't enter, muses Mrs. Borage. I wonder why. Could it be that the ghosts are still under the spell of rationalism? Are they processing single file down the highways of America? Are they upholding the myth of architecture? Are they stopping at every wall? Mrs. Borge imagines the spirit knights of the Imperium at the head of the column, rigid on their chargers, reigning to the left, to the right, around the library, the courthouse, the firehouse, steady hoofbeats on the paving stones. Order is an illusion, says Mrs. Borage. Where is the imminent swarm of night-blooming flocks, the swarm of Brucken, the dynamic swarm of Girdle, the swarm of Pussy Willow, the swarm of Radish? Outside, the ghosts have passed us by, leaving a strange quiet in the world. Mr. Henderson has gone out onto his porch to share his muesli with the birds. He thinks he sees armored men gliding along the sidewalk. Hugh de Payne, says Mr. Henderson. He looks behind him. Was that him who just said Hugh de Payne's? Who is Hugh de Payne's? I meant to say hockey players, says Mr. Henderson. The birds are slipping off the trees, all the tiny branches outlined in ice. is moved to the kitchen. It must be time for lunch. For Agnes, it is a working lunch. She is researching vermilions, the tiny lions crushed by the thousand, to color the crimson velvets of Versailles. Her heart isn't in it. Vermilions had many hearts. Of course, they have been crushed to extinction. The Sun King, notes Agnes, is Talon's Rouge. She eyes the scuffed heels of Mrs. Borge's high-heeled boots. Should she paint them crimson? Of course she should. Is Bryce thinking the same thing? Bryce winks at Agnes. She has a metal filing in her eye. Tomorrow, announces Mrs. Borage, I am going to be a centurion. She shakes her head. I find that nearly impossible to reconcile with my Pacific lifestyle. Do you expect any upheaval, dear? Thor Thorcas thinks. Mr. Zimmer did deliver that alarming letter. Where is it now? Bryce glued it inside the oven, says Fiona. About time. The bare gray walls inside the oven made it seem like... Like we regret life, says Bryce. She is flattening spoons. 
I need an intellectual regimen, thinks Ozark. She puts her fingertips to her temples. My brain feels strange, says Ozark. What's the word? She shuffles her flashcards. Empedocles, bacon, aquavita. Ozark slumps over the kitchen table. She fears there is something broken in her intelligence, or at least badly sprained. Crossword puzzles, advises Mrs. Borage. They increase the mental elasticity. For example, my corpus callosum, says Mrs. Borage. It has assumed the lotus position. Mrs. Borage is eating Mr. Henderson's prunes. She holds up a prune. The third eye, she says to Ozark. She chews it thoughtfully. Would you like one, she asks. She reaches in the bag. Oh, says Mrs. Borage. I've eaten all of them. It's okay, says Ozark. Now I have a hundred eyes, says Mrs. Borage. Like Argus Panoptes, says Ozark. Like a scallop, muses Mrs. Borage. She checks the refrigerator. Has Agnes made one of her scrumptious bivalve custards? No. Would it be in the freezer? Mrs. Borage unwraps a popsicle. It tastes pink, says Mrs. Borage. It is delicious. Bryce is late to turn in the horoscopes this week. She wrote them in the alphabet of daggers, a magic alphabet. It took a long time. Will the newspaper office have the right typeface? Bryce carves 26 potato stamps. Off she goes down the sidewalk, pulling her wagon of potatoes. She is wearing a green tunic and her favorite green felt shoes. She whistles. She waves to everyone she passes. She forgets and waves with the hairy palm. Oh well. In the newspaper office, which is really his parents' garage, ace reporter Duncan Michaels has just finished writing the much-anticipated biography of Bathsheba Spooner. He hopes it can be cross-listed as regional, rich and famous, and true crime. He fears he may be challenged on his style. The long digressions, the extended metaphors, the sprinkling of epic similes. In his newspaper articles, these had passed without comment, but the newspaper is not read by book editors. Usually, the newspaper is not read at all. It is burned in the wood stoves and hearths of the townspeople. Only Mr. Lomberg, the retired fire marshal, would even recognize his style. By the scent, thinks ace reporter Duncan Michaels. Someone is knocking on the door of the newspaper office. Ace reporter Duncan Michaels puts on his fedora. He opens the door. It is mysterious Anamaxandra Pax Britannica, the horoscope writer. She has a wagon load of potatoes. I have changed my mind about the alphabet of daggers, says Anamaxandra Pax Britannica. This week's horoscope will be written in the language of love. She gives him a handful of paper. Paper? It is dozens of origami crustaceans. Ace reporter Duncan Michaels recognizes the starfish, but there are other kinds of stars, six-pointed, eight-pointed, twelve-pointed stars, and there are spindle tibias and heart cockles and rose harps. There is a helmet base, a crowned baler, a boat-ear moon. What does it say? asks Ace reporter Duncan Michaels. The first part is an invitation, says Anna Maxandra, and the second part? She is pulling her wagon across the yard. Her feet are very wet. Wet feet are the danger with felt shoes. Ace reporter Duncan Michaels lines up the crustaceans, two columns on the Vandercook. There is an uneven number. One of the crustaceans remains unpartnered. Unpartnered, says Ace reporter Duncan Michaels. Is that a word in the language of love? This will be a difficult print run, he thinks. Bryce decides to drop by the grease trap. It is the town's only diner. Thank goodness it is a perfect diner. The stools at the counter are always empty. The milkshakes pass the straw test. 
Bryce sits down at a stool at the counter. She eats a spoonful of strawberry milkshake. She orders a bowl of lemon chicken soup and a cup of coffee. The coffee tastes like lemon. Bryce admires the pictures of Lebanon on the walls of the diner. Lebanon is the most beautiful place in the world. Is there a sacred bird of Lebanon? asks Bryce. The city walls are made of glass, says Mr. Hephaestus. There is a cedar gate. He is cleaning the same square of counter over and over again. I don't know about birds. Chicken, says Mr. Dykus. He has just set out a tray of cinnamon doughnuts. Today Bryce doesn't want cinnamon doughnuts. She is thinking about Behemoth, who drank the river of Jordan to quench the desert in her chest. Will Bertrand offer her flesh for the banquet in the sky? Now I'm being morbid, thinks Bryce. She spoons up the last of the milkshake. She puts the green bill in her pocket. Mr. Dykus has nice handwriting. Of course, Bryce also fills her pockets with straws and sugar packets. She leaves behind the napkins. She has folded them into chickens. Mr. Dykus can't remember any more. Is chicken the sacred bird of Lebanon? It might be the sacred bird of the United States. Mr. Dykus has been away from home for many, many years, a lifetime. Mr. Hephaestus is still cleaning the counter. He is singing a song in the language of love. It goes like this. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Journey down from the summit of Amana, from the summit of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. But there are so many languages of love. It might mean something completely different. It might not mean anything. Thank you for listening. Please join us next episode for Johannes Gorenson.